In today's episode, we're going to look at something critical for all lawyers, irrespective of their practice area, knowledge management. We want to talk about the whole process and the science behind that process, which starts from creation of knowledge, identifiable and searchable storage of that knowledge, and then leveraging of that knowledge for your current purpose. We have Jack Shepard, legal practice lead from iManage, who works with iManage's KM Solution Knowledge Unlocked, who is joining us today. Welcome, Jack. How are you? Hi, Prem. Good, thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you, Jack. I'm just going to take a moment to give our audience a little bit more background about you before we get into our discussion. So Jack is a former corporate lawyer from Freshfields, London. He's moved from restructuring and insolvency to legal tech. And in his present role at iManage, he works with lawyers to implement knowledge management initiatives. I would highly recommend you follow him on LinkedIn because he's always posting about pain points of lawyers and possible solutions, tech and non-tech solutions, and they've always been super useful. Very excited to have you, Jack, with us today. Thank you for joining. So, Jack, I'm going to get into the questions, and we're going to start with knowledge management itself and what does it really constitute. So, I always think of a law firm or a corporate legal department as an entity with two valuable assets. One, it's people, and two, it's knowledge database. Both are equally important. And while almost all law firms or corporates pay sufficient attention to the first, which is its people, by ensuring they're well compensated or equipped to perform at high levels of efficiency, the second asset, its knowledge database, and the management of that is often given less weightage. Of course, that's also changing with time. And today, people do realize that they need to build up their institutional memory independence of its people. With attrition and people leaving or churn of your workforce, you really need to have that institutional memory in place. And this holds true for a corporate legal department as well. So my first question is to sort of address the scope of knowledge management or KM and talk about what exactly it includes um, and how does that differ between a law firm and an in-house counsel? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So um, if you don't have a, a knowledge management system or processes in place, then you're in the unfortunate situation where knowledge accumulates either in people's heads or in email inboxes and random Word documents. And you face the challenge if you don't have any systems in place of getting that information and that knowledge out of people's heads. And I have of, heard of too many instances of people searching emails, searching through yeah. emails of someone who's just departed to look for that stamp duty opinion that was sent or something else. It's Exactly. And, and the other practice you see people do is like emails around the team. Like, has anybody seen this kind of situation before? And yeah. actually, that is probably the most common way of knowledge management. Um, but it's probably not the best way because it kind of relies on people being able to service the request in a reasonable time, relies people not being on holiday, people, you know, seeing the email and stuff. So, yeah, I think you're right. Like knowledge management is about having a more structured way of getting to those things and, a, and a, ultimately a quicker response time to get knowledge out of people's heads um, and out of emails and stuff like that. Uh, it was interesting you talked about people as well, because, I would actually include that within the scope of knowledge management as well. I think that knowledge management is not just about finding legal opinions, documents, but it's about finding who in this company is the expert on stamp duty in this kind of transaction. That I would say is something that's within the scope of knowledge management as well. 
and that obviously becomes more important as the organization grows it's hard for you to know everybody yeah. individually and to know who is an expert and what so it's important to know where does that expertise also lie within an organization for sure and i think that um this is why it's becoming um popular in corporate legal teams now because they might have started as quite a lean team with like one two three people and they're like you know just asking someone a quick question or you know everyone copied on the same emails it's knowledge management is kind of a bit easier because there's less yeah. knowledge and there's fewer people but what you often find is teams scaling up really quickly and they don't think about knowledge management and before too long the team has expanded exponentially and suddenly they've they haven't got systems in place to share knowledge and that's why there's such a uh, an increase in interest in this area in corporate legal at the moment yeah that's very true and actually that brings me to my next point with you know with regard to uh, corporations growing and having offices of, across different geographic locations you don't really want to waste any lawyer's time doing double work if somebody within the organization has already done that work you want to give them access to that institutional knowledge so that they can find who is the expert who has this knowledge has already answered this question or has sub prepared some internal memo on it so what are your views on the importance of a robust knowledge management system for a large organization with multi location office or even with remote working nowadays yeah i mean all of the, all of these things have made it um absolutely crucial like if you're say if you're a law firm that's got offices in several jurisdictions covering a number of practice areas you are building up a huge amount of knowledge that should be shared in that organization you brought up remote working like i think back in the day certainly when i was training a lot of knowledge was shared by people asking me i'll oh, go and pop along to this person's office and just have a quick chat with them those kind of channels are a bit harder to to replicate um in a remote setting um although i do think that there are exciting opportunities to go even further but the interesting thing about um international offices and i see this particularly around like us and the uk is that often yeah. different offices want to adopt different methodologies around knowledge management like in the in europe for example there's a bit of a culture around having dedicated knowledge managers who pr produce things like practice notes and templates and things like that like purpose built knowledge assets okay. and those are really useful but in the US the culture has been more around people using uh example documents and that there being like no like template or official firm standard but just lawyers sharing ad hoc samples or precedents of contracts and that's how what they that's use how in a specific case so they, it's possibly something that they executed in a specific transaction or a memo they right. in a specific instance so it's a it's a specific use case that they're putting into knowledge management they've not developed something standard like in europe yeah okay that's exactly right and the 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 interesting thing is we're starting to see a confluence of those two approaches now and it's the best of both worlds really because if you think about it like a, the us approach of just sharing like past examples of contracts is kind of not that helpful unless you have the context behind yeah. the contracts because how often um, are you going to have the exact same fact scenario repeat itself yeah it, 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 exactly and you know i can look at a contract and like i don't know whether it's buyer friendly or seller friendly just off the face of it it's useful to have that co that context um but i think equally in in europe that that maybe that, that maybe there's more value in having the, the sort of the practical application of some of these templates like okay well this is the template but 
how does that template actually get negotiated in practice? So it's really interesting seeing the, the these two approaches join up. For sure. And another thing key that I see from any knowledge management system is the indexing of that knowledge or, you know, tagging it or, you know, capturing certain met metadata, whatever you want to call it. Basically something that helps make your data identifiable, searchable and easy to sort and filter. I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit more on the importance of this metadata tracking in any knowledge resource. Yeah, it's super important. And um, there's a few ways of doing this. Oh, like when we're talking about metadata, like it's not just putting uh, extra data on documents for the sake of it, that you've got to have a reason for doing it. And the reason in this case is to help people find it more easily. Um, a really basic way of doing it, of classifying documents is to put them in folders. This is like what I always suggest a, a team doing that has no knowledge content wants to start their journey. You don't need a big knowledge system, just put it in folders to start with. When you start getting um, too, too, too much content to handle in folders, then you need to start thinking about the metadata question. And in particular, the difficulty people have with folders is they might have a folder for like, um, examples of an SPA, for example, a share purchase agreement, they might have another folder for, you know, interesting contracts or whatever. And what happens if you have to put a document in more than one folder? That's where that limitation arises, where you're using folders to classify things, but a document can't be in more than one folder at any given time unless you copy it, and then it becomes very difficult if you want to edit it. And then you have a lot of duplication. Um, yeah, and it gets so complicated, it really does. Um, so then you have to think about, like, okay, I'm going to need something that's going to rely a bit more heavily on metadata and probably a bit more heavily on a search interface as well. Google is a great comparison, and most users of Google don't may not recognize this, but the reason Google finds stuff for you is because the content that underpins it is extremely well classified. That might not, might not appear, appear like that, but when you're building a, a website, for example, yeah. It's not just a, like it's not really equivalent to a word document. You know, there are certain things you have to put in certain places, like the title of the web page, um, keywords, all that kind of stuff. There's places that that always goes in a website. And although Google uses like machine learning to detect uh, the intent of a user's words that they type into a search box and then mapping that through to to websites, it uses lots of structured content yeah. like Wikipedia, for example, and entries on Google Maps to, to map what you've typed in the search box to to what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, and the same principle is true of knowledge management in law firms. Lots of people um, come into this uh, world of knowledge management with the expectation that they've, you know, that, for example, I have seen firms say, okay, we've got a document management system that's got several hundred million documents in it. I want to deploy a knowledge management system over that and uh, I want it to help people find things. And my response is, well, it's probably not going to work too well because if you've got 300 million documents, none of which have any metadata on them, you're really just relying on a keyword search. And that is far less effective than having like documents, you know, not just with a title, a date and text, but with other stuff like what was the name of the transaction? What is type of document? What are the key clauses? those kinds of things, they really give you extra metadata structure to, to help people yeah, find results. If you search through that many documents, you'll get so many search results, then it's it's another job to sift and search through those search yeah. results. 
Yeah, it's it, exactly. And like the other the other thing, I suppose, is that you've got a documentary system of 300 million documents. It's probably a tiny fraction of those documents that are actually helpful for knowledge purposes. So a good analogy to use is anything you can do to reduce the size of the haystack is going to be super important. And, and that's why I think a heavy focus on things like curation of content, which means lawyers actively marking a document out as being helpful, that th those things are really key as well to a knowledge management strategy. Yeah, I can totally see that. Another aspect which is extremely important to knowledge management is keeping things up to date as and when the law changes, which, as we know, will be quite often in certain practice areas. So what are the things that an organization can do to keep its knowledge management system dynamic and up to date? Yes, yeah, it's, it's such an important consideration. I'm glad you asked the question because it's often forgotten about that. There, there there's a couple of things that, that can be done. Um, the first thing that people can do is uh, introduce like a time period where every single knowledge asset or certain knowledge assets are uh, are to be reviewed. Like, so this is something I see a lot with things like firm standard templates yeah. have an expiry date of like a year, for example, and then it has to if be somebody reviewed by that practice area. Exactly. If if someone if someone doesn't renew it after a year, it's like okay, well it's taken off the system or it has a health warning on it or, or something like that. So that is a super important thing. Um, the other thing that people should look out for is encourage a culture of lawyers sharing their most recent work product. And if you are lucky enough to have a dedicated knowledge resource, then monitoring the activity of what's actually happening on the ground and seeing, for example, like, oh, there's this new clause in this share purchase agreement that I've never seen before, or oh, people are starting to draft their witness statements in a particular way. I wonder why that is. That might spark um, a, a decision to review your existing content or to, to issue guidance to people or to write some article or something to distribute to people to, to help them understand the changes in law. But yeah, all, all of that stuff is crucial. Also, things like even like the most basic things like team meetings and retrospectives after projects have closed. Those are really important ways to capture updates in law and to inform people of updates to law. And then you can record the outputs of those sessions and then make them available as knowledge assets in the future as well. So it's a really important point. Um, and of course, a lot of content will come to the point where it needs to be removed from the system because it gets out of date. So it's really important to keep an eye on that, that, that maintenance aspect of the workflow as well. Actually, I really liked what you mentioned about the expiry dates because you've got two sort of or rather you've got two times at which knowledge comes in. One is when you complete a transaction and then you send in uh, or a memo or an opinion and you send in all of that data for knowledge management. The second is you say every year we're going to look at X, Y, Z or if a new bill comes into force, we're going to look at X, Y, Z because yeah. we need to update that and ensure uh, that everything that is attached to that particular concept, it could be an agreement, it could be a memo, is also touched upon and has the same expiry date. So that's a good point because um, you do it proactively. You're not just waiting for a transaction to come in that particular area of law. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's kind of related to both of those things is that in, in if you're deploying a knowledge system, for example, or even if you're not, make sure that you encourage lawyers to give feedback 
on the knowledge documents. Like if somebody reads a template and they say, oh, hey, this this template looks like it was it's about 10 years old and the law's actually completely changed. Get that feedback. Yeah. That's very interesting. <laughs> I think it's uh, hard always to give lawyers feedback. So especially when it comes from other lawyers, it's always viewed as a critique. But I can see how important that that is to the to maintaining the system. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and actually, like, although lawyers aren't great at giving feedback, they are often very good at pointing out when things are wrong. So um, often it's not a problem for people to sort of say, oh, this is out of date because they the one thing, though, they don't like making mistakes. So, yeah, I find that happens quite freely. <laughs> sure. So initially, a lot of knowledge management was people driven. But today we have systems and software to assist in the process. So, Jack, what are the kinds of insights and analysis we can have access to using some of these tools? Yeah, so um, law, law firms probably a bit behind on this. Um, like, if you if you take a, a site like Amazon, you know, it's able to detect things like buying patterns, and uh, it's able to detect based on your profile and other people like you what you're likely to buy. And you know, I've read in places that the future business model of Amazon will be that they deliver things to you but, and you don't actually buy them. And Before it's you even know return. you want them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And law firms are nowhere near that um, because many of the processes that law firms do are, are unstructured and discretionary. And that makes it very hard to capture content. But there are a number of law firms that have, that have solved this issue, at least in part, and are collecting insights uh, from their lawyers. Um, a really good example is there's a lot of firms embarking on like uh, deal capture at the moment. So depending on the jurisdiction you're in, you will produce what's called a deal Bible or a yeah. transaction Bible at the end of the matter. And a lot of firms have created some great processes where they are capturing the insights from the deal. So like what, you know, what was the purchase price, for example, what was the uh, assignment provision in the what, you know, what, what industry sector was involved. And if you do that enough times, you can start to draw out market trends. trends. Yeah. And, and especially if you supplement this with, with information from third-party sources. I remember when I was a lawyer, I was asked to do an exercise of tracking uh, the flexibility of assignment provisions in loan documents over a 10-year period. And the, the trend, and I did that by looking at about 200 loan documents. And what oh I saw, God. that must have yeah, been I know, a right, exercise. hugely manual exercise. And, you know, I saw that they, that the assignment provisions got more restrictive over time. But if you had um, been capturing those insights over that period, you'd be able to just tell and you'd be able to go further. You'd be able to predict what's happening before it even yeah. happens. So that that's a really great example of what law firms could do. Like there's stuff around litigation as well like in the US there is there are third party services that help you understand decisions by certain judges on certain subject matters uh, for yes, example so I've heard can, about that yeah it's and you can start, predict what the judgment could be from a particular bench yeah exactly and you put put numbers on it as well which is an awesome way of advising clients so yeah it's, it's an exciting future I actually heard that um, for a lot of companies, it's very helpful for the, for their accountants to do this analysis yeah. when they are yeah. putting together a figure for their contingent liabilities. So they have to look at all of their outstanding litigations and put like um, basis this software or and internal analysis, assign a certain weightage or an amount that they may have to pay out. 
and then use so, that in their contingent liabilities on the balance sheet. Yeah, I love those kind of use cases where like it's not a very legal thing anymore. It's like a financial thing and a business thing. So that's a really cool example. So Jack, moving into slightly different gears, I know you also work with your product management teams and you provide feedback to them on user insights because you work on both sides. You work with the users to help implement KM initiatives and you also provide feedback on, or rather you provide user feedback to your product management teams internally. And I'm sure your user feedback is super varied and differs from client to client. So my question is how do you prioritize that feedback when you convert it into action items for the product management team? And if you could give us a couple of examples that would be very helpful. Yeah, sure. So um, this is a subject that I find there's a bit of misunderstanding about. And what I will always say, and, and, I, and I do believe this quite strongly, is that you cannot build technology. You cannot build good technology yeah. without understanding your users. And that involves speaking to your users. And what a lot of people then sort of say to me is, oh, when, when Steve Jobs designed the i uh, designed the ipod you know, he didn't go out and ask people what they wanted exactly. you know, he was I mean, a visionary his whole point was that you need to tell them what they want because they don't know what they want right right uh, um and the other thing the other quote that sums that up is the whole um thing that henry ford is alleged to have said which is if i would have asked people what they wanted they would have said faster horses and my, my response to to these things is that they they are misleading because Steve Jobs did speak to people when he made the iPod but he wasn't saying he wasn't asking people to design the iPod for him he was trying to get in their shoes and understand what problems they were having in their day-to-day -day life and understand what problems he was solving so to give the iPod example um people were articulating issues around got you know 100 different cds i want to listen to i have to carry those around with me at the moment on my walkman that takes so much space up i don't want to do that um and i, and I have to go to the shops to buy my cds I, sometimes i just want to buy the new cd and yeah. I, I don't have time to go to the shop and no one was saying design the ipod but what steve jobs then did was take those things away and then his visionary was around coming up with a solution to those problems and identifying what the problems were first and then coming up with solutions. That's so it's a great uh, example. And I love the way you explained that because I too have uh, found this struggle between, you know, talk to your customers and um, understand what their needs are compared with what you said, Henry Ford and Steve Jobs said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? How do you marry the two? Yeah, exactly. And like, I think sometimes there's a, and I had this as well when I first started, there's a tendency to kind of like, not want to engage with users because you think like you should be the visionary but yeah. the, if i would and, I, and i've been through this like i design a product that works really well for me yeah. well that i'm the most useless person that it could work for because i'm not a customer <laughs> if, it, if it works for me and no customers then it's a worthless product so you really need to make sure you're understanding what what problems your customers have and that's at the heart of it here i'm not going to firms and legal teams asking them what features we should build it, often they will give me examples of features that they want building. I'm not just going to go and build those features. Um, their, their feedback for, to, on feature building is is helpful, but not because they've told me a feature, but because it's indicative of an underlying problem. Like if, right. if somebody says like, 
you know, maybe a good example that we're, we're working on at the moment is like around, around curation, for example, where we're engaging with a lot of law firms on this and they're sort of saying that nobody has, nobody has time to submit knowledge, like they're all busy doing their billable work and nobody has time to uh, classify or add tags to documents. And yeah. that's that's really useful feedback because I've got a really good problem to pivot around and focus on there, which is that we want people to be able to access knowledge and find knowledge, but we don't want people to be able to, um, we don't want people to have to spend ages tagging them and submitting them. So what we come up with there is a great problem. Now, our solution to that is to try and capture knowledge as part of processes that people do in their day-to-day -day lives anyway. So a great example of that is like, um, any tools that people are using to create deal bibles for example at the end of a transaction which is something they have to do capture knowledge off the back of that process like you know have it so that there's a step where you create a deal bible and it's automatically submitted to to knowledge for example so um yeah engagement with with users is is not about asking for features it's about understanding them putting yourselves in the shoe in their shoes and then the visionary part comes in understanding what solutions work for them. Um, and in terms of prioritizing things, um, you know, I think sometimes I've seen, I've seen startups kind of particularly young startups take feature requests from users and try and put them directly in the product, product backlog. Like yeah, that's, that's a dangerous. Uh, it's very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. It's very dangerous. And what you really want to do is you want to have like a, a product vision and an aim of where you want to get to and that is a really key thing because it gives you that it gives you an anchor for anything that doesn't fulfill that vision doesn't go on the backlog yeah. um certainly i wouldn't recommend putting features on the backlog directly for reasons i said like it might i've had so many occasions where people um ask for a feature but actually you you can read you, based on what they're saying you can say that the the feature they've actually asked for doesn't meet their underlying need that they they have but they're not articulating so that that's the yeah. skill of a really skilled product person is to cut through what people are saying and understand what the fundamental need is and then come up with a solution which is more often than not not the solution that they have in mind that's a very good point jack thank you so much jack no, I think we've had a very interesting session on knowledge management. We need to really see how we can make knowledge management uh, easily accessible so that each lawyer can leverage the data within that for their current purpose. So I, I think it's been very insightful, everything that you've had to share with us, Jack. Thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you as well. And I, I, I agree with everything you said there. And I think that just to sum it up, it's... Uh, it's it's kind of 50% technology, 50% cultural and and process. And yeah. you can get obviously half halfway there if you do 50, if you do the culture stuff right and halfway there if you do the tech. But combining them both is is really important. And establishing a community of knowledge sharing is kind of probably the single most important thing a, a firm can do. That's a great ending note, Jack, because I think a lot of times people overlook the people processes involved and often they think just the technology will work like magic. Um, yeah. It's important to stress that there is a people element as, as well and people plus technology could be a great combination. Exactly. Yeah, completely agree. That's a great point. Thanks so much, Jack. Thanks again. Thanks so much.